you would turn in your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 9, I told y'all we'd be back. Revelation chapter 9. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and in lieu of an opening illustration, uh, tell you that I'm going to do something a little bit different uh, this morning. A lot of times when I zero in on a passage and I, I preach it, um, I, I will go and, and, and try and spend time on every single verse. Um, I'm not so much going to do that this morning, uh, and I will explain why. Um, we're going to read chapter 9, verses 13 through 21, and we're going to talk a little bit about 13 through 19, but I'm not going to spend much time there. Uh, I'm going to spend the majority of my time on verses 20 and 21, and, and let me tell you why I'm going to do that. <clears throat> Because if you can't tell by the title that you have on your handout, this week's sermon is about repentance. Uh, and, and that's the point of 13 through 21. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this giant demonic-led army that you see in verses 13 through 19. Uh, because the, the core of 13 through 21 is really the last two verses. Which is, despite that army, despite that horror released on the world, a large group of humanity still chooses not to repent. What is repentance? Repentance, we hear a lot of time, is, uh, is turning away from your sin. Um, that is true. But it's not just turning away from your sin. It's turning away from your sin to God. It's not turning away from your sin to trying harder. It's not turning away from your sin to a different sin. Which, by the way, you can do. You can, you can be so proud that you're not sinning in what you were doing that now you're not doing that anymore, but now your sin is pride. You, know, you, you can do that. Turning from your sin and turning to God is the Greek word metanoia. It means to, to stop going one direction. Think of it this way. If I'm, I'm walking in sin, going this way, I would take the Greek word for all you marching band people. I would go full about base. And I would metanoia right here. I would turn. If this is sin, this is not metanoia. And walk this way. This is not repentance. This is not repentance. If this is sin, this is repentance. It's dropping your sin and immediately going the opposite direction. It's a total and complete life change. That's what repentance is. And there are tons of reasons that people don't want to. We're going to look at a few of them today. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Revelation 9, verses 13 through 21. Then a sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. 
And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, the third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents, having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people with hearts soft enough that we'll repent when we see that we should. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So let's talk a minute about where we are in in this book of Revelation here that... Uh, I, I said a couple of weeks ago that we're getting into the part of the book where things begin to look more and more fantastical. Uh, that does not mean that they, I'm not saying that means they're fictional because they're beginning to look more fantastical. A uh, couple sermons ago, my sermon was titled The Blurring of the Line because at that point, it gets very hard for anyone who would in this time period be experiencing the events of the book of Revelation. It would be very difficult for them to explain it away without supernatural occurrence. That up until that point, you may have been able to find some natural, materialistic way to explain what's going on in the book of Revelation. But really, once you get to chapter 9, there's no way to do that. You can't do it. There's demonic armies, and then you get to the sixth trumpet. So we had seven seals as Jesus was taking the seals off of the title deed to earth. You can see that in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. That starts really in chapter 6 as the seals start coming off. When the seventh seal is cracked open... um, we have the seven trumpets, and these angels have trumpets, and they blow them, and when they blow them, things happen. Uh, so the sixth trumpet um, is being blown in 9, verses 13 through 21. Now, I want to briefly talk about this army, because I do believe that every word of Scripture is important. It's all inspired. It's all valuable. But, like I said, the core of this passage, I think, is in 20 and 21. But to set up 20 and 21, we have to see what's going on in 13 through 19. So the sixth angel sounds his trumpet, and you hear a voice, look at verse 13, from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So any time in the book of Revelation that you're seeing before God, it's almost like heaven is set up like a temple. Heaven is almost set up like the temple in the Old Testament. That if you think, what have you seen so far? You've had incense. You've seen incense burning in heaven. There was incense in the temple in the Old Testament. You've seen an altar now. Was there an altar in the Old Testament temple? Yes, there was. Uh, You've seen, uh, does heaven have a high priest in it? Yes, Jesus Christ. He himself is our great high priest. Uh, That instead of the Ark of the Covenant being where God meets with his people, you've just got God. He's the center of heaven. Okay, so heaven is kind of set up like a temple. Well, when you think of the altar in the temple, what is the altar typically for? It's for sacrifice, and sacrifice is the engine of God's mercy on his people. 
that sacrifice in the Old Testament was substitutionary. That if you had sin uh, that had been not been dealt with, what you would do is the Old Testament law prescribed a series of sacrifices that you would bring your sacrifice to the temple, you would lay your hands on the sacrifice, and then the, the goat or the calf or whatever it was, the turtle dove or whatever sacrifice had been prescribed by the law, uh, if it was an animal, you would slay it. And the priest would take the blood and the blood would be applied to the altar and in some cases you and the sin would be, uh, the sin would be atoned for. It would be covered over. That the altar was a place of mercy. In fact, even if you go back and you look at some of the stories in the old, particularly in the David narrative, um, there would be folks who would run into the temple and they would lay hold of the horns of the altar. If you've ever read the Old Testament and see that, it's a very odd image because we don't, we don't have you know, altars like that here. That We call this an altar, but really, y'all, it's a step. Okay? It's, it, this is a step. We call it the altar because we don't have an actual altar here because... We don't set up a visible, physical effigy of God that we're bowing down to. Not that they did in the Old Testament, but the altar was a particular prescribed part of the temple that sacrifices were given on. We don't have an altar where we put sacrifices on. So we have a step that people come and pray at, I hope. (laughs) But in the Old Testament, you would go... And you would lay hold of the horns of the altar and say, this is a place of mercy. Don't kill me. Don't don't hurt me. I'm I'm seeking sanctuary. I'm seeking mercy by laying hold of the horns of the altar. But where does this voice come from? In verse 13. Comes from the horns of the altar. A place that is normally a place for mercy. A place for forgiveness. A place of safety. A voice comes from the altar that says, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Let me ask you a question. Who do you bind up? Good guys or bad guys? You don't bind a good guy. Why why would you bind up somebody who's good? If these were good angels... God wouldn't have them bound because they would just be waiting to do what He told them to do. But no, they're bound because they have something they want to do and God is restraining them. So the altar, which is normally a place of mercy and forgiveness, gives the order, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Verse 15, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to do what? Kill a third of mankind. Now y'all... By this point, there's been a lot of death in Revelation, hasn't there? You're looking at a point now where if, if my math and memory is correct, the world's population is a little less than half of what it was when this started. There's about 9 billion people on the planet right now. 9 to 10 
billion. One of the commentaries I read said at this point, the widespread death would be so horrible that it would be, you're going to have a tough time dealing with the bodies. Does this sound grotesque? Yes, it does. I'm not trying to be macabre. I'm not trying to be dark. I'm trying to be biblical. And don't forget, it's not just the humans. You've had the water that's been affected. You've had the sea. You've had the rivers. You've had animals. You've had everything. This planet is bordering on unlivable right now. They've been released to kill a third of mankind. Now, the number of the army of horsemen was 200 million. There are legitimate questions as to whether or not this is an army entirely made up of angels, or rather I should say demons. Demons are nothing but disobedient angels. There's debate over whether or not this is an army made up entirely of demons or whether or not this is an army led by four demons that is actually people. I don't know that it makes that much of a difference because 200 million people bent on killing a third of mankind can do some serious damage. I heard a, an, an author one time say, I think this, was, this was an author of scary stories. They said, you know what the, the, the most terrifying monster in all the world is? A, a person. A twisted person. Imagine an army... Of 200 million bent on killing enough to kill a third of the population of the earth. A third. So whether it's angels or whether it's people under the leadership of demons, uh, they're 200 million strong. And in case John, John says in verse 16, I heard the number. So when you say, no, 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 no. He couldn't actually mean an army of 200 million. John says, no, I actually do mean an army of 200 million. And then you get a large description of, of how they kill. And, and frankly, I don't feel the need to go through that. It's violent. It's, it's somewhat scary. Um, yes. That is the point. Look at how violent. Look at how scary it is. Look at how terrifying it is. You would think that someone in the face of that would fall on their knees in front of God and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me from this, wouldn't you? How many of y'all? How many of y'all remember? I, I can tell you where I was. I was in my seventh grade classroom. I had just come in from PE. I walked in and asked my teacher, um, "What movie are we watching?" Because I was watching uh, I, the 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 World Trade Center was on fire, and I, I assumed that I was watching a movie. Because I saw a plane flying into it, and that doesn't happen in real life. And our, then we all noticed slowly that our teacher was crying, and she said, y'all sit down. And the TV stayed on. And we all sat there in stunned silence. And then came the second plane. And then came the intercoms. 
as parents started taking their kids out of school and the rest of us sitting there crying because we didn't know what was going to happen because we had never seen anything quite like that. Y'all remember that? You probably all remember where you were when it happened. Yeah. I won't forget that. And I, I also won't forget the first day of Operation Shock and Awe when I saw the, the, the footage of the planes dropping the bombs on Baghdad, Iraq. I won't forget that. I can tell you what classroom I was in then, too. And you know what else I remember? How packed the churches were. Y'all remember that? There's probably a bunch of people here after that, weren't there? You would think in a traumatic moment that people would turn to God and say, have mercy on us sinners, save us. But the stunning part of this passage is not the 200 million strong demonic army. It's not the, the altar finally telling that the time of mercy is over. It's not that. It's the fact that in the face of all this, you get verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. You didn't repent. Why is it that people don't want to repent? I got two reasons. And we're going to cover them with the rest of the time that I have left this morning. The first is that some refuse to repent and turn away from God in order to worship false gods. In verse 20, it says that they did not repent of the works of their hands. Now, normally you would think of the works of your hands being just anything that you do. Anything that you use your hands for. Any activity that you undertake. But this has a specific meaning. It says they would not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. So there are two levels of idolatry at work here. First, the works of their hands. The actual statues, the actual idols, the actual material things. People worshiping material things that they have made with their hands. And then second, the demons behind the works of their hands. I had a professor when I was at UGA for my undergrad. I did a silly thing and I took religion classes at UGA because I just wanted to see what they would say. Um, it was interesting, to say the least. Um, but I had a professor in an undergrad religion class at UGA one time tell us that ancient pagans get a really bad rap because they get they get set up as stupid because obviously they would not worship the actual piece of wood or gold or, or rock that's in front of them. They're not worshiping that. They don't think that's a God. They believe that there was a greater God somewhere behind it and this was just representative. And, and maybe some ancient pagans did. Yeah, I'm sure a good number of them believed that there was some other entity out there of which this was just a point of contact. It was a way for them to say, this is the way I imagine this God to be. So I'm not actually worshiping this little statue. I'm actually worshiping this God, and this statue is just my little way of having this God here with me. What's scary is that they might have been right. The pagans, I mean. 
No, I'm, I'm not saying that there are other gods. I'm just saying that a spirit being behind an idol is not a silly idea. It's never a good spirit. I'm just saying that, y'all, it is really easy for us in 2019 Western culture to poo-poo the idea of the supernatural being involved in the world. Don't. Don't. Because what happens in Revelation chapter 9? It seems that paganism has made a comeback. Do you know that in the United States today, witchcraft is a growing religion? Do you know that? Paganism apparently makes a comeback by this point. And they're seeking refuge in idols, in talismans, in rituals, in the works of their hands, in the gods behind them. Scripture says very clearly that demons masquerade as gods. Deuteronomy 32, 16 and 17. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. And then there were also those who worshipped idols themselves, even though they knew where the statues came from. Is that stupid? Yes! Yes, it's stupid! Well, Josh, that's pretty, that's pretty mean. Why would you call them stupid? I didn't. God did. They're sitting on your handout, but Isaiah 44, 19, God tells the story in Isaiah of a craftsman. He's a woodcutter and a woodcarver. He goes out into the woods. You can go to Isaiah 44 if you want to read this. This craftsman goes out into the woods and he takes his axe and he finds a tree that he thinks, this is a good tree. There's some good lumber in this tree. And he cuts the tree down and he cuts the log in half. Half of it he uses to make furniture, to heat his house, to cook his food. And the other half he carves into an idol and he sets it up in his house and he bows down to it. Isaiah 44.19 says, No one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge and understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I've roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? This is God's tongue-in-cheek kind of way of saying, Wow, you guys must be really smart to know which half of the tree is firewood and which half is God. How do you know which half to carve into the idol? Because what happens if you pick the wrong half? Did you cook your pancakes over your God? It doesn't make sense. And yet, do people set things up as gods in their lives every single day that have no power to see, no power to hear, no power to walk, no power to do anything of value for them? Do people do that? Absolutely. Every single day. 
Every single day, people do that. They set up false gods. Why would anyone do this? Why would anyone in the face of this kind of devastation refuse to turn from worshiping, best case, a block of wood? Okay? Best case, a block of wood. And worst case, a demon. The only good case is to worship the one true and living God. But I think all of us would agree if there was a choice between a block of wood and a demon, it's probably better to be with a block of wood. But neither of them are good. Why would people refuse to turn either from their their idols or their demons? Why would they refuse to turn from them to God? Two reasons. First, you'd have to admit being wrong. 1 John 1, 8-10, through 10, this is on your handout. John said, if we say that we have no sins, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins. Do you know what the word confess is in Greek? It's the word homologeo. It's a combination of two words. Homo means the same. Logeo means to say. So if we say the same thing about our sins, as who? As God. To confess our sins. See, we always talk about sins or or confessing our sins as just telling somebody that we did it. But is it possible to tell someone that you did it and that not be a confession? Absolutely it is. You can brag about your sin. That's not confessing it. Confessing your sin is saying and believing the same thing about your sins that God does. Do you believe that your sin is as bad as God believes it is? Do you believe that your sin is as deep as God believes it is? Do you believe that your sin is as deserving of punishment as God believes it is? Because if you don't, that's not confessing it. It's not just saying, I've done it. It is saying, not only have I done it, but I view my sin now the same way that God does. You would have to admit that you were wrong. Now let's finish that verse though, because if you just read that and you say, oh, it's it's evil, it's horrible, it's worthy of punishment, that's depressing. But that's not where 1 John left off. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. Why? Because He said that we have sinned. If God says that we have and that our sin is this and we say that we haven't and our sin is something else, we are not homologeoing, we are heterologeoing. We are saying something different. To confess means to see your sin the same way God does and to turn from your sin, to really turn from it and not just turn to a different sin. You've got to say the same thing about it that God does. That means leaving it behind. So to turn from your false gods, to turn from that sin, you've got to be willing to call it out for what it is. 
Christians, one of the most powerful witnesses you have in the year 2019, in the year of our Lord, is to call sin, sin. We don't play with it. We don't make friends with it. Y'all, this is almost... I'm going to use a four-letter word behind the pulpit. Are you ready? Hate sin. Hate is almost treated as a bad word now. Now, do I hate people? No. Do I hate sin? Yes. To repent of that idol means you have to say the same thing about your sin that God does. You have to admit being wrong. And then second, people refuse to turn from false gods to the one true God because they would have to want the righteousness of God more than the licentiousness than false gods offer. The licentiousness that false gods offer. Um, Augustine. Who was, who, who was a pastor of, of Hippo in the f- fifth century, I believe, maybe fourth. He wrote a book called The City of God. And it was a refutation of Romans attributing the fall of the city of Rome to Christians. That they were saying, Christians, if you had just worshipped the old Roman gods, we would not be in this mess. Because while we worship the old Roman gods, this city was safe. This city was secure. This city prospered. It wasn't until you and your Jesus got here that people stopped worshiping the Roman gods and this city fell. That you are just immoral people. And Augustine said, really? Christians are immoral people. Let's examine your Roman gods. Because Zeus was the, the most chaste of all the gods. Right? Anybody know your Greco-Roman mythology? How faithful of a husband was Zeus? Not very. Not at all. They were constantly cheating on each other. Running around on each other. And Augustine finally gets to a point where he says, Name me one law that your pagan gods gave you. One. You can't do it. Take the Augustine challenge. Go dig through your Greek literature. Go dig through your Roman literature because I know we all have tons of that at our house. But go read your ancient myths. Find somewhere, somehow, where one of these ancient gods told people how they were to live their lives. You can't find it. All you have is stories about them, and they're not very good stories. Augustine said if they were moral gods, they should have given their people moral laws. But you can't show me anywhere where they did that. They gave no rules whatsoever. You only modeled your lives around theirs, but you can't even do that. Because if you modeled your lives around theirs, you would look like them, and your society would fall apart. Interesting. What happened to Rome? It fell apart. You want to know the benefit of worshiping a false god? There are no rules. You can make up your rules on the fly.
It's interesting. There's so many false religions that were started by quote-unquote prophets that change about halfway through because he finds something else he wants and then has a revelation that this wasn't okay then, but it's okay now. There are no rules. It changes on the fly. You would have to want the righteousness of God more than the licentiousness the false gods offer. Psalm 24, 3-4. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Do you want God's righteousness more than you want the freedom to send your life into destruction and death? What do you want more? Do you want life and freedom and safety and love in the abode forever of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do you want to pursue your false gods straight into hell? Yes, I said it. That's what it would take. Now, is grace here for you? Absolutely. If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You can be pure and spotless before God today. Your price is paid. Your debt is paid. The blood of Jesus is enough for you. You can have that right now. It's it's not do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. It's done. It was done for you and on your behalf. It cost Jesus everything so that it would cost you nothing. That's there for you. I'm not preaching doom and gloom today. I'm preaching grace and love and mercy. But if you turn from that, there is no God who can save you from my God. I promise you. And as a side note, I won't spend long here, but Christians, you say, I'm so glad I'm not worshiping an idol. Hold that. Any of y'all ever read the screw tape letters? C.S. Lewis? If you haven't, you should. Let me explain to you what I'm about to read because if you don't understand it, it's going to confuse you very much and wonder why I'm still pastor of this church. Screw tape letters is written from the opposite direction. In other words, most of the time when you read Christian books, Satan is labeled as the enemy, angels are labeled as the good guys, and Christians are labeled as uh, the 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 People are labeled as the objects of God's love whom he wants to save. Screwtape Letters is written in reverse. C.S. Lewis wrote it from the point of view of demons. So Christ is the enemy to them. People are not the object of God's love. They are the object of wanting them, demons want them destroyed. The angels are not the good guys, quote unquote. The demons are. Instead of taking orders from the higher ups, they take orders from the lower downs. That kind of thing. So this is a chapter on prayer. Screwtape is the senior demon and he's writing advice to his undertempter, Wormwood. And Wormwood's target is in it, Wormwood's in trouble because his target has started praying. And Screwtape warns him. He says, listen, the first thing you got to do is you got to keep them from praying. Because as soon as they start praying, that's when bad things can happen. So your first thing is to keep them from praying in the first place. But if you fail at that, he says, just have them praying. Instead of praying and asking God to give them things, have them say that they're asking God to give them things. But really try and find those things in themselves. And then if that fails... 
Because Jesus, He said, the enemy might not let you get away with that forever. Eventually the enemy is going to intervene if they're praying to, to Him. Eventually He's not going to let you win this forever. So you've got to keep them from praying to Him. So here's how you do this. But of course, the enemy will not, meantime, be idle. Whenever there is prayer, there is danger of his own immediate action. He is cynically indifferent to the dignity of his position and ours as pure spirits. And to human animals on their knees, he pours out self-knowledge in quite shameless fashion. But even if he defeats your first attempt at misdirection, we have a subtler weapon. Humans do not start from that direct perception of Him that we unhappily cannot avoid. They have never known that ghastly luminosity, that stabbing and searing glare which makes the background of permanent pain to our lives. If you look in your patient's mind when he's praying, you won't find that. If you examine the object to which he is attending, you'll find that it's a composite object. An object put together containing many quite ridiculous ingredients. There will be images derived from pictures of the enemy as he appeared during that discreditable episode known as the Incarnation. They will be vaguer, perhaps quite savage and puerile images associated with the other two persons. There will even be some of his own reverence and of bodily sensations accompanying it, objectified and attributed to the object revered. I've known cases where the patient called his God was actually located up and to the left at the corner of his bedroom ceiling or inside his own head, or in a crucifix on the wall. But whatever of the nature of the composite object, you must keep him praying to it, the thing that he has made, not to the person who has made him. You may even encourage him to attach great importance to the correction and improvement of his object and keep it steadily before his imagination during the whole prayer. For if he ever comes to make the distinction, if he consciously directs his prayers not to what I think you are, but what you know yourself to be, our situation is for the moment desperate. Once all his thoughts and images have been flung aside, or if retained, retained with the full recognition of their merely subjective nature, and the man trusts himself to the completely real, external, invisible presence, there with him in the room, and never knowable by him as he is known by it, why then, then it is that the incalculable may occur. Translation. Get them praying to the God that's in their head and not the God that actually exists. See, we fall into this trap because we can name the God in our head Jesus, even though that Jesus bears no resemblance to the Jesus who's in the Bible. For instance, I can do this, 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 and Jesus loves me anyway, but they don't actually mean what they just said. What they mean is that Jesus is okay with what they just did. Y'all, this Jesus in the Bible is never okay with sin. He's never alright with it. He never affirms it. He never condones it. He rebukes it. He died to take the penalty for it. Why on earth would He tell you it's okay? If you've got a Jesus in your head that is okay with your sin, you might have named Him Jesus, but this Jesus He ain't. You can set up a false God and name Him Jesus and that's still a false God. 
There's only one Jesus. And there's only one way to know Him. Anything else? You might as well be a pagan. Because you made up a false god. So some turn away from, from God to worship false gods, and then some turn away from God to worship the most dangerous false god of all. The end of the road for all false gods. Satan's end game play. Satan's end game play was never to get you to worship Zeus. It was never to get you to worship Odin. It was never to get you to worship Ra. Was never to get you to worship any of these false pagan gods of history. Satan's end games to get you to worship yourself. That's the last play. Look at verse 21. And they did not repent of their murderers or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So there are four types of works that the unrepentant in verse 21 refused to give up. Murders, not that interesting of a word. It means exactly what you think it means. Greek, English, Spanish, Latin, whatever language you want to put it in, it means murder. Okay? Simple term. We all know what murder means. Sorceries. <clears throat> this is a fun Greek word. It's the Greek word pharmakon. Does that sound like any word we possess in the English language? Sounds like what, church? Pharmacy. What do you go to the pharmacy to buy? Drugs. Sense-altering substances, liquids, whatever. Same root from which we get the word pharmacy. It can mean spells and incantations and witchcraft, yes. But it also means, and my dictionary, my Bible dictionary puts it as magic potions or charms. Y'all, you get a sinus infection, what you think amoxicillin is? That's a magic potion when you're sick, isn't it? Now, I'm not saying when you get sick, you're worshiping a false god by taking an antibiotic. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what Paul would have been talking about either. That's not what John's talking about in the book of Revelation. What we're talking about is folks who worship the experiences that these substances and beverages cause. You ever heard someone who's strung out on drugs describe the subject, describe the experience as religious or out of body or higher plane or something like that? Absolutely. There's a very religious element to those things. Do they function as maybe indulging the false god of self that I would give anything to experience that sensation or that experience again? It's self-indulgent. Sexual immorality, it's the Greek word porneia. That has also made its way into the English language. What it means in Greek, it's kind of a catch-all for sexual immorality. Think of it like all of us have that desk at the office that's got a little bit of everything in it. 
You know, that you pull the drawer open and it's got pins, it's got sticky notes, it's got white out, it's got your loose change, it's got your receipt from Pizza Hut two weeks ago, it's got all of this, that it's the drawer that if something is in your pocket and it needs to not be in your pocket, you put it in that drawer. Some of y'all, maybe that's just me, maybe y'all are more organized than me. If y'all ever walk in my office, I promise you, the, the drawer right in front of my, if you open it, you're going to find receipts and staples and pens and wallet size pictures maybe. I don't know. You're going to find all kinds of stuff. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's the drawer that the stuff in my pockets goes in. This word, porneia, it's like that except for sexual immorality. If it is sexual and it is immoral, it is contained in this word. It's the catch-all. Okay? Theft. Also not that interesting of a word. What do all of these have in common? They are self-indulgent. They are self-gratifying. Where does Jesus say murder begins, church? In the heart. You don't murder somebody for no good reason. You murder somebody because you want something. Either you want something they have or you want them gone. You want, you want, you want, you want. Why do you you use drugs? Do you ever use drugs to make somebody else feel good? No, you use them for you. Sexual immorality. It's always self-focused. It's self-indulgent. Theft. If you steal something from somebody, who has it when you're done stealing it? You do. It's self. Why would they refuse to turn from God? Well, why would you repent if you believe you're God? If you believe you make the rules, why would you repent? Why would you repent if you deserve to enjoy the best? If you believe that you're a God and you have a right to anything you could possibly have, then why repent? Interesting, that's exactly what Satan said in Genesis 3. You will not surely die, for God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. God doesn't have a good reason for keeping that away from you. He just doesn't want you to have what He has. He's putting it there for you to look at it, for you to see it, for you to want it, and you don't get to have it. Why? For no good reason. He's just telling you that's mine and not yours and you can't have it. Why don't you show the old man? Does that sound disrespectful toward God? Yeah. Of course it does. It's coming from Satan. I can be who I want. I can have what I want. I can go where I want. And nobody can stop me. And there will be no consequences. And I dare God to tell me I can't have it. That's what Satan wants us to get to. Setting ourselves up as God's. I'll close this sermon out by reading two opposing passages of Scripture in terms of how humans view themselves. Romans 1, 28-32 
Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those practice that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That we are sick and tired of this ancient God of this old book telling us who we are, what we should be, what we are allowed to have, and what we can do. So we're going to do what we want, and we're going to praise anybody who comes along with us. Because this world, this life is ours. YOLO. Who knows what YOLO means? Anybody? Raise your hand if you know what YOLO means. It means you only live once. I heard a Christian musician say that when somebody screams YOLO, you only live once. Yeah, you do only live once, but remind them that the Bible says you can die twice. That if this world is all you have, this world is all you have. That you can choose, I will have everything in this world, regardless of what says about it. And God might step back and let you pursue it. But at the end of the day, this short little lifespan will be all you have. Compare that to Hebrews 11, 13-16. These all died in vain, not having received the promises. That they saw good on this earth. They saw enjoyability on this earth. They didn't receive it in their lifetime. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, because they want heaven more than they want earth, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. What do you want more? What do you want more? Do you want this earth? Do you want this life?